Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Advent is a season rich in apocalypticism. It's really about the apocalypse. It's about living between two apocalypses because we believe that the new era began at Jesus' birth, and yet it's not been consummated, so we're waiting for a a later, grander, universal apocalypse. So we're caught in a weird part of the historic timeline. We live between these two apocalypses. It's like living in a traffic jam on Route 80, you know, between our origin place and our destination. We're stuck, and sometimes we move a little bit, but sometimes the pace seems slow. Sometimes things seem rather uneventful, even where God is concerned, you know. I think that it can be difficult to perceive in the midst of this time between the times, difficult to perceive God's exact involvement or God's immediacy. Uh, This is why Luther so frequently referred to God as the deus abscondus, the the hidden God, the God that is not always so obvious to us. He was obvious in the birth of Jesus and the miracle of Mary's pregnancy and the grandeur of the birth and the angelic announcements, and obviously he'll be very evident at Jesus' second coming, but what about now? What about us, where we are in Grove City, Pennsylvania? Where is God in Grove City? Where is God in the world? I got one laugh for that, thank God. I mean, I felt a little lonely up here. But uh, where's the Deus Abscondus now? If we've ever felt that way, we're not alone. People in Scripture felt that way. The author of Lamentations felt that way. The author of many of the Psalms felt that way. And the authors who wrote in the midst of exile felt that way. Isaiah, this Old Testament prophet, certainly felt that way. The context is that he's writing and addressing a situation that occurred in 586 B.C., in which Babylon, the great um, and terrifying empire of the time, Uh, decided that it would like another jewel in its crown. So it attacked Judah, utterly destroyed Jerusalem, torched the temple, and got rid of Israel's kings. And then took a portion of the population back to Babylon for the sake of reprogramming so that they could be devoted little citizens of the new regime. And to go to Babylon and to leave all of the things that you associated with your people, your history, your religion, remember for the Jews, land, that is the promised land, was everything. The temple, the locus of God's immediacy and atonement was everything. Your monarchs who were supposed to keep you safe, that was, keep you safe, that was everything. And now it's all gone and you're in Babylon which is the rough equivalent of like Hades town for these people. So you're living in Hades town, and Isaiah um, is praying from that place as he talks about this exile. Uh, and he, uh, he actually prays for God to act, but to act in two different ways. Some people would even say two divergent ways. In the first half of our passage, that is verses one through five, Isaiah seems to be asking God to function shockingly 
and obviously. But in the latter portion of the text, Isaiah changes his tune a little and asks God to be tender. So this prayer shifts from shock to tenderness, and I want to speak about both tonight. First, Isaiah pleads for God to shock the world. Verse 1, please follow along. It simply says this in verse 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Isaiah wants something very specific from God. What he's essentially saying here is, you've done many signs and symbols and offered those in the past. I don't want those. You've offered lots of words, endless amounts of words from prophets and teachers and priests and no more of that. And you've also performed miracles. You know, people get healed. Manna appears on desert floors and people sometimes even rise from the dead. I'm not even asking for that. I want something a step above all of those things. I want you to rend the heavens and come down. In other words, I want you to tear the sky in half and enter the world in an obvious way. He's asking God to act with bold, universal obviousness. You know, Isaiah, what's he doing in this word portrait? He is considering the largest thing that he and anybody else at the time can see. What's the largest thing Isaiah can see? Not himself, not the king, not the high priest, not a house, not a palace, not a city, not a country, not an empire, not even the world. He needs something bigger than that. What he's thinking of, of course, is that thing which everybody sees, the canopy above us all, right? The great dome. He sees the sky and says, the biggest thing that I can see, the most obvious thing for everybody, I want you to tear it in half and enter the world in a bold and obvious way. Be so bold and so obvious and so shocking that nobody can miss it or misjudge it or misinterpret it. It's obvious that God is here and that God is active. And of course, Isaiah has some precedent to ask God to do this sort of thing because God within the Old Testament narrative has a history of doing rather grand things. This is why he writes in verse 4, um, if you want to look at it from verse 4, from of old, so insofar as anybody can remember that long ago, from, old, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who does what? Who acts, acts for those who wait for him. Now, within Israel's self-understanding, what differentiates Yahweh from the pantheon of gods that you would find in the ancient Middle East? What makes him different? What distinguishes him from Tiamat, from Ra, from Hermes, or even in our own day from the universe that's often deified? Here's what makes them different from a Jewish perspective. Those other gods don't do anything. They don't do anything. But Yahweh does. He distinguishes himself not just by what he is, but by what he does in time. He's the God who parts the seas. He's the God who sends fire from heaven. He's the God that keeps rescuing us every time we get into trouble over and over again. He is the God who does things. And so Isaiah offers this 
exasperated plea to the God who does things and said, look, your people are stuck in Hades town. It would be great if they could get out of Hades town and you could end this exile if you wanted to. So come down, rip heaven in half, pour out your descending, dazzling nuclear holiness into the world and act on our behalf. Be obvious, be shocking, especially to, to quote verse 2, our adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. Not just so that we're helped, but so they all know who is the real sovereign of the world. Brag a little, boast in yourself, do something public and unavoidably true. That's what Isaiah is praying. That is the place that he's coming from in order to offer such a prayer. He's in a place of seeming abandonment, and he wants immediate help for a grand crisis. And I'm wondering if in your own personal pain and the difficulty of your marriage, dealing with your second child who won't even talk to you anymore, talking with your brother who's still doing heroin and on a street somewhere, or maybe you have uh, somebody in your life who is a repeat abuser, and you, from that pain, from your own form of Hades town, have cried out, not for a little help, not for God to give you sort of a functional emotional Red Bull so you can get through, but actually to do something that changes everything in your circumstance. To, in his own way, rend the heavens and come down, enter the situation and make it better wholesale, in such a way that it's an unavoidable conclusion that God has, in fact, acted. I'm wondering if your pain has ever caused you to pray like that. I remember the first time I prayed that way. I will never forget it. I was 13 years old. Uh, I began to attend youth group because my grandmother would occasionally take me to church. Um, home was not an easy place for me. School was worse. Uh, when I was in seventh grade, uh, I, I was sort of the iconic dork. I know that's so shocking to you now, right? I had terrible acne. I had really thick glasses that looked like they fell off like an old lady's face. Um, I had bad braces with Pittsburgh Steeler colors on my teeth. I don't know. I mean, it was, it sounded like a good idea at the time. I know it's hard to imagine because I blossomed so well. Uh, but, you know, I was, I was, of course, the perfect target for bullies, and there was one really horrific jerk named Jeff who was a bully, not just of me, but of many, but he would often make my life miserable. But I remember one day it got especially bad um, where he did what they call a book check, which is when they, they shove you into a wall so you drop all the books that you're carrying. But he actually grabbed me by my face and cracked it against the corner of a cement wall in the school. And I immediately passed out. Uh, it, the, it, the force was that great. And I remember kind of in a, in a dizzying way coming to and being out of it. And I just, I didn't know it at the time, but blood was just pouring out of, the, of my face. And I um, I'd stumbled into the class very disoriented and sat down. And I, I could see that everybody saw but didn't see at the same time. And the teacher saw but didn't see, kept bouncing her eyes away. She was sort of irritated that eventually she'd have to deal with, the, <laughs> uh, with this victim of a hate crime. Um, but it was, it was bad. But what made it worse was Jeff actually was sitting right next to me in class, like looking at me with this dark glee and this 
um, devilish smile on his face, and he kept saying it. He said it at least twice. No one sees you. No one can see you. Um, and I remember later that night um, going to youth group, and we, it, they were doing some silly series about like Bible heroes and <laughs> the people you should be like, um, without really reading the stories. But um, the Bible heroes, <laughs> and uh, and. And I remember hearing about the miracles. I, I remember that night specifically. And we had a little chapel time afterward, and I just prayed in my heart. I'm like, look, I know I'm not Moses, and I know I'm not Jeremiah, and I'm not like these people. I'm not good, and I have problems, and I, my life doesn't matter very much. But I, it would really help me a lot if you could fix this, because I don't want to deal with this every day of my life anymore. Like, I, I'd rather live a happier life. So please anything. Um, I'm wondering if you've ever been in that space, because I've been in that space. Well, Isaiah is experiencing it on a national level. He says, look, we're away. We have lost everything. What about us? Can you do something so grand that it's unmistakable? What's interesting, though, is how Isaiah changes his tone as he writes or speaks. First, he prays for God to shock, but then there's this Dramatic tonal change in verses 6 through 9 where Isaiah softens, and I think he softens for a very good, insightful reason. Because Isaiah begins to realize why they are in the exile in the first place. Let's read it together. Um, this is verse 5. Behold, you were angry. And we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We fade like a leaf, and all our iniquities, like the wind, take us away, i.e., into Babylon. See, Isaiah realizes that the exile itself is simply the bitter fruit of a poisoned root. Judah was functioning so idolatrously and adulterously and satanically for so long that they eventually earned an exile under the Sinai covenant given to Israel as a theocratic nation, a covenant that we are no longer under. Uh, under that covenant, disobedience, consistent disobedience to Yahweh, would be punished. In fact, some of the prophets used language of vomiting, that is that the promised land would vomit you out. You would be spewed out of the land and sent into exile if you didn't watch yourself. They didn't watch themselves, so they go into exile. They were there because of themselves. They earned an exile, in other words, under the old system. And I want you to notice the extreme language that Isaiah uses to describe Judah's problem. He says something not about their sins, though he could write about that all day long. He says something about their righteousness. Did you notice that? It's really offensive in some ways. He says this about their righteousness. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Now, sometimes Bible translators tend to subtleize things that are more blunt in the text, not to be... Uh, uh, rather indiscreet, but the original Hebrew means something like old menstrual garments. That, and he doesn't say that about our sins. He says that about our best day. 
when you are a veritable St. Francis of Assisi, when you sing to the birds, when you're nice to your kids, when you cook them a dinner, when they appreciate it, when you appreciate them, when everybody goes to bed at the right time and you get to watch The Office before you go to sleep, when you have a perfect day and, and you gave to charity, you wrote a big check to my discretionary account. I mean, it all went really, really well. And Isaiah has the tenacity to say that even on the best day, compared to God's holiness, compared to the nucleus of being, compared to him who sits upon the throne, even the best we can offer is sullied by our own twisted motivations and self-interest. Even the best we have to offer doesn't pass the test in and of itself. And Isaiah says, that's where we are, and we are melting. Did you hear that microwave language? We are melting in the hands of our sins. We are dying. We're dying because of what we've done. So he kind of owns himself. I think he changes his tone in part because he deduces that if God tears the heavens in half and comes down to deal with God's own adversaries, they're in trouble because it's not only Babylon who are God's adversaries. It's Judah. Judah has proven that it's the adversary of God by functioning in the way that it's functioned for a long, long time, and now they're in exile because of it. And so that's the danger, friends, of justice. Not that justice is errant. It's, of course, not. But the problem is when justice is truly enacted, everyone loses you lose. Your rector loses. Well, this is the situation, and this is why the prophet begins to pray for tenderness, and this is in verse 8. There's a transition phrase here, but now. That is, after all I've just said, notwithstanding all of it, but now, O Lord, you are our Father, and we are the clay you are our potter, we are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. See what he calls God in this passage? You are our Father. Now, we're used to that language, right, because of the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, very rarely used in the Old Testament. That's more of a Jesus phenomenon. Here he's saying, remember the paternity, remember that we're your kids, and we're hoping that you remember that to the degree that you function out of that core part of, you, of who you are and not your wrath, which is a subsidiary aspect of your being. Act out of your core identity. Similarly, you are the potter, we are the clay. You're the sovereign, we're the ones being molded. We need you to show that you're in charge for us and help us by being a good potter. Isaiah is, like many of the Old Testament authors, especially the psalmists, reminding God of his nature. It's not that God has amnesia and forgot, but what they're saying is, you are a promise-making God. You've promised to be with us. You've promised to get us out of every sticky situation. You have promised to forgive. We're asking you to make good on all the promises right now for us. Please function from that uh, core nature of yours, that pure goodness and gracious nature of yours. So he cries out for tenderness. Don't relate to us in ferocity, but tender, tenderness. Don't send us into another exile or keep us here forever, but act towards us in tenderness. 
he sees that the only hope for Judah is God. By the way, that may sound like, a, like white noise, like preachers speak, like who, of course, but not of course, because we often function as if the only hope for us is us. Judah sometimes thought the only hope for Judah was Judah. If they just finally cleaned up their act enough, everything would work out. They never would, they never could, they never did. By the way, you're not going to fix yourself completely either. And sometimes the more you try, the worse it gets. I mean, it's, human nature is complicated, and so is our ability to fix ourselves. Um, instead, he cries out for God to fix it. And friends, I think that's the big Advent message. There are other Advent messages like, make sure you're ready. That is, you need to put your faith in Jesus and turn toward him. That's true. But there's a bigger message. God is coming to fix it. It's really about God, not so much about you. I mean, you're great. You're terrific. But the planes are not even. You know what I mean? So that's the prayer from Isaiah. He prays first for shock, and then he prays for tenderness. So let me wrap this up for us tonight and land it for us. This is Advent. Isaiah's prayer was that God would be obvious and come down, that you would come down, that you would enter in, that you would not leave us alone in our hellscapes, that you would rescue us from Hades town and God in God's own marvelous way answers Isaiah's two requests, but not in a way that Isaiah himself predicted. Because we know, as New Covenant Christians, that God did indeed come down. God came down. But the skies were not rent. They stayed in good shape, never torn in two. Instead, the deus abscondus, the hidden God, descended in the form of an unknown unnoticed newborn, wriggling and wailing in a Bethlehem barn. God came down in his own way, in a very subtle way, in such a way that it seemed like it wouldn't make any universal or long-lasting impression or difference at all. In many ways, God's descent in Jesus Christ, in effect, was the opposite of the big bang that Isaiah prayed for. But sometimes, within the wildly weird economy of the kingdom of God, subtlety, subtlety is how the world changes. Subtlety. I know this in my bones. Um, Back, just for a moment, indulge me, to my bullying story. Years later, I was 19. I was a student at Eastern University meeting with a very prayerful, intuitive, and pastorally gifted priest for some counseling. At the end of those sessions, he would say, Ethan, why don't we pray? And then I would expect something crazy for him to pray. But he didn't. Very often, he would take one or two minutes in complete silence because he was trying to listen in and be directed by the Lord as he prayed. Very wise, actually, looking back on it, even if I didn't understand it at the time. Uh, And I've never actually shared this with uh, anyone but this congregation before, but it's not too personal that I somehow can't share it. Um, One time in that prayer session when he started talking, unprompted and without him knowing anything about this unpleasant seventh grade bullying episode, Greg, that was his name, grabbed both of my hands and said very directly and with great authority but also 
inordinately high compassion. He said, you know that thing that happened in school when you were 13 years old with all the blood? You were seen, you know. You were seen. And it did matter. And then he prayed something pious, and I don't remember what that was. Uh, but who cares? Those words, um, those words have deeply, deeply affected me. Because, you know, God didn't answer seventh grade Ethan's prayer to totally change everything in his life. And when I was in college, God did not give me a time machine to take me back into the past so that I could punch Jeff in the face. No, but instead, he gave a struggling, suffering college kid a subtle gift, a subtle reminder that I was seen and that the pain mattered. And that, for me, recast the past and drained it of all of its toxic power. That simple subtlety saved the day. And that's why I can talk about it with you, because it doesn't have power, except the power of relief. Sometimes, a subtle descent from the heavens changes everything. It is the small thing. Sometimes it's just a tiny seed that falls to the ground and dies before it creates a great harvest. Sometimes the, the tiny leaven of the kingdom infects the dark dough of the world. Sometimes a little insignificant birth in the middle of nowheresville can change the eternal destinies of billions of people. God did come down. God the Father proved his paternity by sending a son. God the potter sent that same son hidden within a tabernacle of clay so that we could recognize him. To use the ancient creedal words, he came down from heaven and was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. This is a simple Advent reminder my dear family, that you are seen in your own Hades town and that it does matter. We are not abandoned. And more than that, Advent is a reminder that God has, in fact, acted. Isaiah's prayer was answered. You'll get a subtle sign of that tonight in Holy Communion as you chew and drink the spiritual body and blood of Christ. It's his way of saying, in a small and subtle way, I'm here and I'm saving you along with the rest of the world. Amen. Free at last, they took your life, they could not.